how very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. He said, Jesus himself said, the Son of God. In this law, he said, dwelleth all the law and all the prophets. Childish manner, Scott and I impishly danced around his body before he was dead. Just strangely enough, it was a rush, a teenager's rush. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah! Hey, strangers! Welcome to another episode of Strange Talk Podcast. And if you've been following me on Instagram, which I haven't really posted too much about it, but I said in my last episode that was recently released... Uh, because it was supposed to be released the last week on last Monday, but unfortunately Anchor was being really stupid with me and corrupted the file as it was processing, which is the second time it's happened while I've been using Anchor. And I'll be honest with you, I love Anchor. I think Anchor is really cool. It's unique. It makes it completely... And I'm not just saying that because I'm sponsored by Anchor, but I am saying that because Anchor... Did actually because honestly, when I first got into podcasting, I did not know how I was even going to go about it. I didn't even know how to get episodes out there. I didn't even know how to get them onto Google. I when I did some research, they said that you have to go through this whole process about getting approved, and then eventually, if it gets approved, it will be eventually go into. But it could take day ten days. So, anyways, it was just very confusing. And Anchor made everything easy. And I'm not. I am being paid by Anchor too <laughs> because I'm sponsored by them, but this is not an extra ad because you already heard an ad. I'm just saying Anchor's cool, but you know, I, it's a give and take. It's, there's a pro and con to everything in life and Anchor can sometimes work for you and sometimes it decides not to. But having said that, today's episode is going to be, I'm going to be discussing a few cases, maybe one or two, maybe three or four. You won't know until you listen to it. <laughs> but anyways, um, I'm going to be discussing a few cases of people who were wrongly convicted of a crime. And some of the crimes that they're convicted of are very, very heinous. Um, I know one of them you're going to find to be very heinous, but it was fucking sad what happened to you. But most of these people, the reason why I chose to do this episode is because most of these people lost a good chunk of their life due to the crime that they were convicted of. And it just sucks. But before I get into that, I just wanted to share a couple of things I did over the weekend. And um, one thing I did over the weekend was my fiance and I took a trip to Calico Ghost Town. If you don't know what that is, Calico Ghost Town. I was under the impression, though, that it was going to be ghost hunting. But unfortunately, it wasn't. But I actually did still have a relatively good time. We went to a restaurant called Peggy Sue's diner it's a 50s diner and she started actually in the 50s obviously it's not just ironically named that but she started it in the 50s and so there's a bunch of memorabilia of her setting up the shop because it was originally just a small little diner like you know the 50s diner if you've never seen one google them internet is your friend google is your friend look it up of what a 50 diners look like and uh it was originally just a small little like 50s diner which when you first enter it in you can see but then as it became very popular and she needed the space she expanded into three sections and not only that but towards so as soon as you enter to your right of you is with the restaurant where you can walk in and then to the left of you is a small little shop that they call the five and dime 
It's where you can purchase memorabilia from Peggy Sue um, and a bunch of other random little knickknacks that centers around stuff from the 50s. Like, for instance, um, well, not the 50s because the Beatles were more. Well, the Beatles started in the 50s. So, yeah. Did they? I don't really know. <laughs> Welcome to the Talk Podcast where I don't really know a lot of shit. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they have like Beatles stuff. They have a lot of Elvis Presley stuff, Wizard of Oz stuff. So I'm assuming she was a big fan. But she and on the picture in the table that we sat on. There was like a bunch of pictures of like celebrities from Marilyn Monroe, John Wayne, and then she had like a little section of celebrities that went throughout the years to Peggy Sue's diner, like Lawrence Fishburne, uh, Diane Keaton, uh, the Beach Boys, and a bunch of other people. And then it shows celebrities because I get, I'm assuming it doesn't really say, but I'm assuming that Peggy Sue was some what of an actress, or she was she worked in like the movie industry business, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure because she met a lot of celebrities like Chevy Chase and all that stuff. It shows a bunch of pictures, but it was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool, interesting thing. And the, the, the waitresses that are there, they were all wearing um, like the stuff that the, the attire, like that a waitress would wear from back in the fifties, which was pretty cool. So it was, it was a pretty, it was a pretty cool experience, but onto what we actually were down in that area of Yerma, California, I believe it was Yerma or Yermo, California. I think it's Yermo, California, but we went to this little place in the area, this little area called Calico, and it was a town from back in the early 1900s. It was a silver mining town. And so I was under the impression, like I previously said, that we were going to be doing a ghost hunting thing, but no, it was simply just a tour, a ghost tour of the Calico town. So uh, the tour guide was basically giving a history lesson and all the, all the historic buildings. Uh, most of the buildings that were there in the Calico town are the original buildings that were there back in the 1900s when Calico was a bustling silver mining town. And uh, he just sprinkled in some of the ghost stories uh, that, you know, workers claim they seen ghosts and there's a cemetery of the people from the original Calico town of back in its heyday when it was from the 1900s, the cemetery is still there. And you can actually see, uh, we didn't get to see that part because the tour happened at night. So you get to walk around the grounds of Calico Town at night. But uh, it was actually pretty cool. I want to go back uh, because they have another tour. They have t- three different tours. They have the the town one, which is the one that we did. And then the other one is, uh, the second one is the mining tour, where you actually go into the mine of where they, uh, but obviously you can't go deep into it, but they, you get to go in some parts of the mine that they allow you to walk in that the Calico mine workers would mine for silver because it was a silver mining town. And then the third one, which is the one that I want to do the most, is they take you to the children's school that was there. And they, they claim, because like if you don't know me and you've never really listened to Strange Talk Podcast and you're a new listener, welcome to Strange Talk Podcast. But I'm a person who doesn't really believe in paranormal. I I mean, I did when I was a kid because I was fucking scared of it, but because it's just scary, you know, you're a kid, you're easily scared. But uh, nowadays, I don't really believe in ghosts, demons, all that good stuff. But uh, like, I'll believe it. And when I see it, and I know there are going to be people out there that can debate with you will say, you ever seen a million dollars? No, well, fuck you, buddy. <laughs> that doesn't, you know, like, that's stupid to me. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I think more logical. I think logically, I think like if something like, people believe like they're possessed. I don't really think so. I just think you're disturbed or there's something going on in your mind. That's something's wrong with you and you need to get it worked out. But uh, yeah, so the third one is the one that I really want to do, but they only do that on certain Saturdays. So if you, if you want to try something new and different and you live near uh, San Bernardino, 
which it's kind of, it's actually going past San Bernardino. It's in Yermo, California. So if you live near that area and you want to take the trip, I'd say take it. It's pretty good. It's not expensive. It was like 12 bucks a person. It's actually pretty it was pretty cheap, relatively cheap. So it was pretty cool. So go check out uh, Peggy Sue's Diner for the food. Food was pretty pretty good. Not super spectacular, but it was it was pretty good. It was decent. It's filling. And um, go check out Calico and Ghost Town. So look it up online. Calico Ghost Town, I believe, .com. I wasn't paid by them. I just happened to do it, and it was interesting. But yeah, um, it was kind of cool to see the little shit that they offered there. But I do want to go back to the school one because they they claim, the tour guide claimed that that's where most people say that they felt or seen paranormal activity happening there. Um, we didn't get to go near it. We just got to see it because ha- it, that's not part of the tour of the town one, which sucks because the school is part of the town. But, you know, but the tour that actually is mainly centered around the school. They actually bring you inside of the school and they leave you in there for 20 minutes just to see if anything happens or just so you can get the feel of the place. And it does look pretty fucking creepy. It looks like an old, like haunted school place. Like it just reeks of like something that would probably be haunted. But like I said, I don't really believe in that, but that's why I want to do it because I want, I so desperately want to believe and paranormal, you know, in the paranormal, but you know, I have yet to actually experience anything, you know? And so that's, you know, that's why I do this. I, that's why I'm interested in the paranormal. That's why I'm interested in just, you know, the strange because I am myself strange, but anyways, you're here to listen to the wrongfully accused. And that's what this episode is all about. People who are wrongfully convicted of heinous crimes. And the first case that I'm going to be discussing is the case of the Central Park Five. Okay, so our case begins at 9 p.m. on the night of April 19th, 1989. A group of over over 30 teenagers who lived in East Harlem entered Manhattan's Central Park at an entrance in Harlem near Central Park North. They committed several attacks, assaults, and robberies in the northernmost part of the park. According to the New York Times, the attacks committed that night were one of the most widely publicized crimes of the 1980s. According to a police investigation, the main suspects were gangs of teenagers who would assault strangers at a part of an activity that became known as wildling. Wilding. (laughs) Wilding. (laughs) New York City detectives said the term was used by the suspects themselves to describe their actions to the police. This account has been disputed by some journalists who say that it originated in a police detective's misunderstanding of the suspect's use of the phrase doing the wild thing. Lyrics from rapper Tone Tone Locke's hit song Wild Thing. (laughs) I I never sound so fucking white in my life till right now. <laughs> the teenagers attacked and beat people as they moved south on the park's East Drive and the 97th Street Transverse between 9 p.m. and 10 p.m. Within the North Woods between 102nd and 105th Streets, they attacked several bicycle. Bi- bi- oh my God! They attacked several bicyclists, <laughs> hurled rocks at a cab, and attacked a man who was walking, whom they knocked to the ground assaulted, robbed, and left unconscious. 
Okay, now I don't know if that same video of what I'm going to be discussing is linked to that, but I don't know if you ever remember a show in the early 90s that used to come on. I used to love watching it. I think that's where my fascination with true crime kind of came from, was a little-known television that used to come on, um, what was that channel, new fucking network channel? I don't think it's TNT, but anyways, there's really no relevance to, well, I mean, it kind of does, but whatever. Uh, the, the television show that I used to watch was called Real TV. I don't know if you ever heard of that show, but it was called Real TV, and it had this host. He was kind of like in a news. It was sort of looked at as like a news channel, and he was like a news anchor, and he would show you a bunch of different clips of like crazy things that are happening in the world. Like they would show videos of like car chases that ended like disastrously, or like there was one of that they they would actually receive from viewers too that they would send stuff that they found or they had. Like there was one, I, <laughs> that's where my dark humor started, I think. Cause there was one that I remember my mom got so pissed when I said that, but it was, uh, I know I'm going super off topic, but it's, it's, it's going to pay off. Believe me, maybe it won't, but who knows. But, uh, there was an episode where they showed, um, they don't show the death obviously, but it was a video of a family who wanted to take their son. I think he was only, he was turning 12 years old. Cause it was for his birthday skydiving in Mexico or New Mexico, some it had Mexico in it is what I remember. And they were going to, they, he wanted to skydive. But the thing is, is that they let him skydive by himself. But for some reason, I don't know. I don't remember if the details were given, but I, cause I, I'm thinking about it right now as somebody as older, like why would they let him skydive by himself? But they let him skydive by himself. And the family recorded this footage. And when the kid jumped out, I don't know if he panicked the, the, skydiver guide i guess probably was said that he probably panicked because he was scared but when he was skydiving he failed to open his parachute and he fell to his death so that sucks and you can see the family's reaction and me being the little shit that i am i told my mom like what if like when he landed on the ground you see his parachute just poof and like open up but anyways that's where my fucking dark sense of humor is I believe began. It could have started sooner, but yes, that was the joke I said. And she got so pissed when she said it. But anyways, yeah, that was that show. And that's kind of like what attributed to my fascination with true crime and just seeing stuff like that. Anyways, so a school teacher out for a run was, oh, but <laughs> I totally forgot the reason why I brought up real TV is because I'm not sure, but what they said about hur hurling rocks at a cab and attacked a man who was walking and they knocked out on the ground. Um, I remember seeing on real TV, they showed, video because they were videotaping uh there was a group of teenagers who were videotaping their actions doing this in new york city um one of them um walked up to a man just all random who was walking on the street and just elbowed him straight in his face and knocked him out and they recorded it and you could see him laughing at him but they showed that video on on real tv so i don't know if that is the same group of teenagers that did the central park five thing so who knows but it kind of sounds like that because I remember seeing that on real TV, which is the reason why I brought up real TV. So sorry that I digress so much, but back to the case. A school teacher out for a run was severely beaten and kicked between 940 and 950. Then at about 10 p.m. at the northwest end of the Central Park Reservoir running track, they attacked another jogger, hitting him in the back of the head with a pipe and stick. They pummeled two men into unconsciousness, hitting them with a metal pipe stones and punches and kicking them in the head a police officer testified that one male jogger 
who said he had been jumped by four or five youths, was bleeding so badly, he, this is what he said, he looked like he was dunked in a bucket of blood. That was my New York accent. I don't know why I always go to Brooklyn, but anyways. Trisha Malley was going for a run in Central Park shortly before 9 p.m. While jogging in the park, she was knocked down, dragged or chased nearly 300 feet, and violently assaulted. She was raped and almost beaten to death. And about four hours later at 1.30 a.m., she was found naked, gagged, tied up, and covered in mud and blood. <sighs> wow. Maley was discovered in a shallow ravine in a wooded area of the park about 300 feet north of a path called the 102nd Street Crossing. The f- first policeman who saw her said she was beaten as badly as anybody I've ever seen beaten. She looked like she was tortured. I sounded more Boston, but whatever. She was comatose for about 12 days, and she suffered severe hypothermia and severe brain damage, and class 4, which is the most severe, hemorrhage, hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic shock, which is a loss of 75 to 80% of her blood and had internal bleeding. So needless to say, she was severely, severely beaten by the young teenagers. Her skull had been fractured so badly that her left eye was dislodged from its socket, in turn, which in turn was fractured in 21 places, and she suffered as well from facial fractures. The initial medical prognosis was that Melly was subs- would succumb to her injuries and die. She was given her last rites. The police initially listed the attack as a probable homicide. At best, doctors thought she would remain in a permanent coma due to her injuries. But luckily, she came out of her coma 12 days after her attack and spent seven weeks in Metropolitan Hospital in East Harlem. When she initially emerged from her coma, she was unable to talk, read, or walk. In early June, she was transferred to Gaylord Hospital. (laughs) I was gonna... Ah, fuck, dude. I tried so hard to say that without laughing, but... I'm a 30-year-old fucking man, but I'm still so fucking immature. In early June, she was transferred to Gaylord Hospital, a long-term acute care center in Wallingford, Connecticut, where she spent six months in rehabilitation. She was first able to walk again in mid-July, and she returned to work eight months after the attack. Remarkably, she largely recovered with some lingering disabilities related to balance and loss of vision. As a result of the severe trauma, she had no memory of the attack or the events up to an hour before the assault, nor of the six weeks following the attack. This crime was unique in the level of public outrage it provoked, and New York Governor Mario Cuomo, or Cuomo, yeah, Cuomo, Cuomo, whatever, told the New York Post, this is the ultimate shriek of alarm. Trisha Eileen Melly was born on June 24, 1960, in Paramus, New Jersey, and raised in an affluent Upper Street, Clare, Pennsylvania. I meant Saint. Was that Saint? Anyways, a suburb of Pittsburgh. She is the daughter and youngest of three children of John Melly and Wessington House senior manager, and his wife, Jean, a school board member. And she attended Upper St. Clare High School, graduating in 1978. Melly was a five. Pi Kappa, Pi Beta Kappa, Jesus, economics major at Wesley College, where she received a bachelor's in 1982. The chairman of Wesley's economics department said she was brilliant, 
probably one of the top four or five students of the decade. In 1986, she earned an MA from Yale and an MBA in finance from the Yale School of Management. So she was pretty fancy, very smart, very school smart. She worked from the summer of 1986 until the attack as an associate and then a vice president in the corporate finance department and energy group of of the Solomon Brothers. Melly lived on East 83rd Street between York and East End Avenues on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So that's why it caused an outrage because not only was she uh, appearing to be a white woman being attacked by African Americans, you know, so obviously there's going to be a lot of public outrage because we're so still racist. (laughs) Racism has not ended, people. Stay woke. (laughs) So... Anyways, let's get to the real meat of this case. The police were dispatched at 9.30 p.m. and responded with scooters and unmarked cars. They apprehended Raymond Santana, Kevin Richardson, along with other teenagers. I'm sorry, and Kevin Richardson, because it kind of sounded like it was one full name, Raymond Santana, Kevin Richardson. But no, they're two different people. So they apprehended Raymond Santana and Kevin Richardson, along with other teenagers, at approximately 10.15 p.m on Central Park West and 102nd Street. Antron McRae, Yusuf Salam, Salam, and Corey Wise were brought in for questioning later after having been identified by other youths as participants in or present at some of the attacks. The five juveniles were interviewed for hours. Santana, McRae, and Richardson all made video statements in the presence of their respective parents or guardians. Wise made a number of statements on his own. In accordance with the law, Salam told the police he was 16 years old and showed them identification to prove it. If a suspect had reached 16 years of age, his parents or guardians no longer had a right to accompany him during police questioning or to refuse to permit him to answer any questions. After Salam's mother arrived, the police stopped the questioning, but Salam's admissions were admitted into testimony. So that's a bit questioning right there. If you really, if you, if you're one that, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm a, I'm like a lawyer, but it, I watch kind of enough. Not to say that I am a lawyer, just based off of the shit that I watch. But there's a lot of stuff that maybe if I were ever in a situation like this, that I, I would kind of somewhat maybe know what to do. I wouldn't panic so much. Because that's kind of how they get you a little bit. You know, they do certain ways to try to, because sometimes, you know, we don't live in a perfect world. Humans make mistakes, human error. But anyways, additionally, before the raped jogger was found, one of the other boys the police had rounded up sitting in the back of a police car blurted that he didn't do the murder and named Antron McRae as the perpetrator. Kevin Richardson, who was sitting beside him, immediately agreed, saying Antron did it. Later, after Raymond Santana was interrogated about the rape, and while he was being driven to another precinct, he, on his own, exclaimed, this is what he said, I had nothing to do with the rape. All I did was fill her tits. That's what he said. Normal police procedures stipulated that the names of criminal suspects under the age of 16 were to be withheld from the media and the public. This policy, however, was ignored when the names of the arrested juveniles were released to the press before any of them had been formally arraigned or indicted, meaning that their fucking names and pictures were blasted all over newspapers and news media 
prior to them even being convicted of any crime. And that shit really sucks because that will create a mob mentality. That's what sucks about that shit. And which is why I'm kind of glad that in today's time, we don't necessarily do that. Although some news outlets are kind of fucking up in that department sometimes because they just want to get the story out there because they want to make their money. But I'm so glad that we've kind of changed our ways with that. (sighs) Including one 14-year-old who was ultimately not charged. The media's decision to print the names, photos, and addresses of the juvenile suspects while withholding withholding Maile's identity I'm going to just say Maley's, okay? Identity was cited by the editors of the City Sun and the Amsterdam News to explain their own continued use of Maley's name in their coverage of the story. Four of the five confessed to a number of the attacks committed in the park that night and implicated implicated one or more of the others. None of the five said they themselves actually raped the jogger, though but each confessed to being an accomplice to the rape. All five said they, that they themselves had only helped restrain the jogger or touched her while one or more others raped her. Antron McRae said that a Puerto Rican kid with a hoodie had been the one who raped the jogger. While he was incarcerated in the Rikers Island jail, Corey Wise told the other sister of a friend of his, according to her testimony, that he had that he had only held the jogger down. Yusef Salam 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 <laughs> made verbal admissions, but he refused to sign any confession or make one on videotape. However, Salam was implicated by all of the other four and convicted at trial. Six others were charged with committing crimes in the park that night. As well. They pleaded guilty and received sentences of six months to four and a half years. On appeal, Salam's supporters and attorneys charged that he had been held by police without access to parents or guardians. The majority of appellate court decision noted that Salam had initially lied to police in claiming to be 16, and he had backed up his claim with a transit pass that indeed, falsely as it turned out, indicated that he was 16. When Salam informed police of his true age, police permitted his mother to be, present, to be present. Analysis indicated that the DNA collected at the crime scene did not match any of the suspects, and that it had come from a single, as yet unknown person. Since no DNA evidence tied the suspects to the crime, the prosecution's case rested almost entirely on the confessions alone. One of the suspect's supporters, Reverend Calvin Obutz, <laughs> of the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem told the New York Times this, the first thing you do in the United States of America when a white woman is raped is round up a bunch of black kids. And I thought that's what happened here. It's kind of true. It's kind of true. Although the suspects except Salam had confessed on videotape in the presence of a parent or guardian, they retracted their statements within weeks, claiming that they had been intimidated lied to, and coerced into making false confessions. Salam confessed to being present only after the detective falsely told him that fingerprints had been found on the victim's clothing. According to Salam, I would hear them beating up Corey Wise in the next room, and they would come and look at me and say, you realize you're next. The fear made me feel really like I was not going to be able to make it out. 
While the confessions themselves were videotaped, the hours of interrogation that preceded the confessions were not. Okay? So if you're starting to think, hey, that seems a little fucking fish. That seems a little suspect. You know, that's what they do sometimes. And it sucks. Because when they think they have their man, but they don't really have a lot of evidence to convict the man, they will do tactics like that. I don't care what other cop says otherwise. They do do this, and it's known. If you really look into other cases that were like this, especially from doing the research on this, when I chose the cases that I'm presenting to you in this episode, it's a lot of fucked up shit that can happen. You know, a a good documentary to look at when it comes to this type of shit is on Netflix. Um, What is it called? I want to say it's The Long Shot. And it's about this man who is being convicted of a murder. And when the only he had no way of getting out and they were going to pin it on him. And he was going to spend the rest of his life in jail for a murder that he knows he did not commit. And the only thing that saved his life, spoiler warning, (laughs) if you want to watch it, skip over 10 seconds of this. The only thing that saved his life was the fact that he he, he claimed the day that that murder took place, um, he was at a Dodgers game. So there's no way he could have been in that area. But the only thing that technically saved his ass from not spending the rest of his life in prison was the fact that on that day, that same day that he went to the Dodger game, they were filming an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm there. And on a single frame, you can see him sitting down in that episode. So if it wasn't for that being there, he would probably, ow, he would probably hit my hand on my desk. He would probably be in jail for the rest of his life. So that's pretty crazy. So in a first trial in August of 1990, defendants Youssef, Salam, Antron, Antron, I want to say Antoine, like almost like you're saying Antoine, but Antron, McRae, and Raymond Santana were acquitted of attempted murder, but were convicted of rape, assault, robbery, and riot in the attacks on the joggers and others in Central Park that night. Salam and McRae were 15 years old and Santana was 14 years old at the time of the crime, and they received the maximum sentence the maximum sentence allowed for juveniles, which was 5 to 10 years in a youth correctional facility. The jury consisting of four Caucasian jurors. Now you're probably wondering why I even decided to mention that they were white. And the reason for that is because, obviously, when you become a juror, they tell you, if you, like, some of the things they ask you, like, are you racist? Most people are going to be like, who's going to admit, like, oh, yeah, I'm a fucking racist. (laughs) I mean, maybe if you want to get out of being, (laughs) if you want to get out of jury duty, but who the fuck in their right mind is going to admit that, oh, yeah, I'm a racist. I'm probably not a good juror then if I'm going to fucking, you know, but the fact is most of them are white. Okay. I'm not saying that every single white person. Okay, because you're probably white listening to this right now, and you're probably starting to get mad. You're probably starting to get a little ticked off. You'd be like, well, I never. But anyways, let's just say this. Okay, we all know it. Everybody, everybody, okay, in this world, we all know there are still prejudice. There is still racism racism out there. I can't speak. I know that. But, you know. Obviously, some of these Caucasian jurors, especially when the defense, when the prosecution is spinning their trial and their tail and putting these African-American kids in that bad light, it's obviously going to get to them. So that's what sucks about the fact that, and that's why they mentioned in all the research that I've seen that there was four Caucasian jurors. Not only did they have to mention that, but it makes sense. And so there was four 
African African American jurors, four jurors of Latin American descent, and an Asian American juror. Delib- and they deliberated for ten days before rendering their verdict. And on the second trial, okay, the second trial ended in December of 1990. Kevin Richardson, 14 years old at the time of the crime, was convicted of attempted murder, rape, assault, and robbery in the attacks on the joggers and others in the park and sentenced to five to ten years as well. Corey Wise, who was 16 years at 16 years old at the time of the crime, was acquitted of those charges but was convicted of sexual abuse, assault, and riot in the attack on the jogger and others in the park. And he himself was sentenced to 5 to 15 years, so they added 5 more years. After the verdict, Wise shouted at the prosecutor, You're going to pay for this. Jesus is going to get you. You made this up. That's what he said in in court. Melly took to, took to the stand during the trial and said afterwards, I'll tell you what. I didn't feel wonderful about the boy's defense attorneys, especially the one who cross-examined me. He was right in front of my face, and in essence, calling me a slut by asking questions like, when was the last time you had sex with your boyfriend? Wise lawyer had also asked her whether she had been assaulted by men in her life, suggesting that a man she knew may have attacked her and implied her injuries were not as severe as they had been made out to be. Jurors who were interviewed after the trial said that they were not convinced by the confessions, but were impressed by the physical evidence introduced by the prosecutors, which was semen, grass, dirt, and two hairs, consistent with the victim's hair, which were recovered from Richardson's underpants. Four of the convictions were affirmed on appeal, while Santana did not appeal. The five defendants spent between six and 13 years in prison, and the case attracted nationwide attention and was a subject of many articles and books both during the trials and after the convictions. But in an unsurprising twist, back in 2001, convicted serial rapist and murderer Matias Reyes was already serving a life sentence for other crimes that he committed, but he was not at that point a suspect in the Central Park attack on Miley. At the time, Reyes met Wise in an upstate New York prison, the Auburn Correctional Facility. In 2002, Reyes said that on the night of April 19, 1989, he had assaulted and raped the jogger when he was 17 years old. He said that he acted alone, and at the time of the attack, he was working at an East Harlem convenience store on 3rd Avenue and 102nd Street and living in a van on the street. He provided a detailed account of the attack, details of which were corroborated by other evidence. The DNA evidence confirmed his participation in the rape, identifying him as the sole contributor of the semen found in and on the victim to a factor of 1 in 6 million people. DNA analysis of the strands of hair found in Richardson's underpants established that the hair did not belong to the victim. The victim had been tied up with her t-shirt in a distinctive fashion that Reyes used again on his later victims. Reyes was not prosecuted because the statute of limitations had passed, and thus his admissions did not place him at further risk of being charged with the crimes. Reyes had been convicted of raping four other women, and actually he killed one of them. A defense psychiatrist in his trial had concluded that Reyes was not capable of telling the truth, though. Reyes' confession plus 
DNA evidence confirming his participation in the rape. Rape. Why do I feel like I'm saying all these words weird? Maybe I am. Led to the office of District Attorney Robert M. Margenthal to recommend vacating the convictions of the defendants, which are the Central Park Five. Um, the defendants were originally found guilty and sentenced to prison. Supporters of the five defendants again claimed that their confessions had been coerced by police. An examination of the inconsistencies between the confessions led the prosecutor to question the veracity of their confessions. Morgenthau's office wrote this in a letter. A comparison of the statements reveals troubling discrepancies. The accounts given by the five defendants differed from one another on the specific details of virtually every major aspect of the crime. Who initiated the attack? Who knocked the victim down? Who undressed her? Who struck her? Who held her? Who raped her? What weapons were used in the course of the assault and when the sequence of events the attack took place? In many other respects, the defendant's statements were not corroborated by, consistent with, or explanatory of objective, independent evidence, and some of what they said was simply contrary to established fact. In light of the extraordinary circumstances of the case, D.A. Morgenthau also recommended that the court also vacate the convictions for the other crimes that night to which the defendants had confessed. His rationale was that the defendants' confession to the other crimes were made at the same time and in the same statements as those related to the attack on Melly. Had the newly discovered evidence been available at the original trials, it might have made the juries question whether any part of the defendants' confession were actually trustworthy. Morgenthau's recommendation to vacate the conviction was strongly opposed by Linda Fairstein, who had overseen the original prosecution but had since left the district attorney's office. Despite the analysis conducted by the district attorney's office, New York City detectives maintained that the defendants had most likely been Reyes's accomplice in the assault and rape of Melly. So, even though all this evidence was being brought forth to basically clear the names of the Central Park Five. Most of the people's views still felt like they were somehow still. They may have not been the ones to actually physically rape her, but they were somehow still involved. They felt like they got their mans. And most people, when they're like, I'm maybe not everybody, but most people, when they are brought with new evidence. It's almost like they don't want to admit that there was any wrongdoing or that they fucked up. Nobody likes to take the blame for anything, which is understandable, but it sucks, especially when it's other people's lives. If it doesn't affect you, most of us don't. If it doesn't affect you outright, most people don't care. And that's sad, but that's the way it is sometimes. The two doctors who treated her after she was attacked stated that some of her injuries were not consistent with Reyes's claim that he acted alone. A forensic pathologist at the 1990 trial and the New York City Chief Medical Examiner in 2002 both concluded that it was impossible to tell from the victim's injuries how many people had participated in the assault. Police Commissioner Raymond Kelly complained that Margenthau's staff had denied his detectives to access too important evidence needed to conduct a thorough investigation. The claim notwithstanding no indictments, convictions, or disciplinary actions were ever taken against district attorney's offices and staff members. The five defendants' convictions were vacated by New York Supreme Court Justice Charles J. Tejada on December 19, 2002. 
as Morgenthau recommended, Tejada's order vacated the convictions for all the crimes of which the defendants had been convicted. But the thing that sucks about this is it was so many years afterwards, so many years that they lost. It was almost like, can you imagine just it in a way they still got to live their life, but it was like in a different world. You know what I'm saying? Like trying to put it in perspective the best way I can is that imagine being just frozen in time and just having to like say right now, right now where you are, you were just stuck in there <laughs> for whatever reason. You're just stuck in your room, wherever you're at right now. Like if you're in the bathroom, you're fucking stuck in there. <laughs> but imagine and then just like 13 years later, you come out of that room and so much has changed. Can you imagine just going back into that life? It's strange and it's crazy <sighs> man all of the defense had been had completed their prison sentences at the time of tejada's order which only had the effect of clearing their names one defendant santana remained in jail convicted of an unrelated later crime his attorney said that his sentence had been extended in that case because of his conviction in the melee attack all five were removed from new york state's sex offender registry In 2002, New York City Police Commissioner Raymond Kelly commissioned a panel of three lawyers to review the case. The panel was made up of two prominent lawyers, Michael F. Armstrong, the former chief counsel to the Knapp Commission that had investigated New York City police corruption in the 1970s, and Jules Martin, a New York University vice president, as well as Stephen Hammerman, deputy police commissioner for legal affairs. The panel issued a 43-page report in January of 2003. The panel disputed Ray's claim that he alone had raped the jogger. It insisted there was nothing but his uncooperated word that he acted alone. Armstrong said the panel believed the word of a serial rapist killer is not something to be heavily relied upon. The report concluded that the five men whose convictions had been vacated had most likely participated in the beating and rape of the jogger and that the most likely scenario was that the both was that both of the defendants and Reyes assaulted her perhaps successfully the report said Reyes had most likely either joined in the attack as it was ending or waited until the defendants had moved on to their next victims before descending upon her himself raping and inflicting upon her the brutal injuries that almost caused her death as to the five defendants, the report said, We believe the inconsistencies contained in the various statements were not such as to destroy their reliability. On the other hand, there was a general consistency that ran through the defendants' descriptions of the attack on the female jogger. She was knocked down on the road, dragged into the woods, hit, and molested by several defendants, sexually abused by some while others held her arms and legs, and left semi-conscious in a state of undress. It seems impossible to say that they weren't there at all because they knew too much, Armstrong said in an interview. So if you're a little confused on what I just said, these commission, this New York City Police Commissioner Raymond Kelly and the other people that I mentioned, Michael F. Armstrong, Jules Martin, and Stephen Hammerman, they believed that somehow these people, you know, even though they were vacated of all the charges and everything, and they finally got to somewhat live their life out of prison, they still believe that they were, they were somehow involved because even though that they confessed, the fact, some of the information that they said in their confessions 
was stuff that actually happened to this woman. So they knew something and they believed that they should still be convicted of something. In 2003, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana Jr., and Antron McRae sued the city for $250 million for malicious prosecution, racial discrimination, and emotional distress. The city refused for over a decade to settle the suits, saying that the confessions that withstood intense scrutiny in full and fair pretrial hearings and at two lengthy public trials established probable cause. A New York City New York City lawyers under then Mayor Michael Bloomberg felt they would win the case. While running for mayor of New York City in 2013, Bill D. Blasio or Bill De Blasio, pledged to settle the case if he were to win the election. Filmmaker Ken Burns said in a, new, in a, in a November 2013 interview that Mayor-elect De Blasio had agreed to settle the lawsuit. A settlement in the case for $41 million, supported by Mayor De Blasio, was approved by a federal judge on September 5, 2014. Santana Slam McRae and Richardson will each receive $7.1 million from the city for their years in prison, while Wise will receive $12.2 million. The city did not admit to any wrongdoing in the settlement, though. Although they won the case, the city did not admit that there was any wrongdoing back in the day when they were being convicted as young kids, pretty much. Which sucks. Like, <laughs> I mean, probably if I was in that situation and I was receiving 12.2 million or one of the persons that received 7.1 million, I probably wouldn't be as mad. I would still probably be a little fucking pissed that, oh, okay, yeah, you're giving me this money, but the fact that you won't admit, like that sucks. That sucks so much. Like you'd rather give them money than just to say, yeah, we fucked up. Those people were fucking racist and they, or they were probably just corrupt, but we fucked up. They, they'd rather give them money than to admit that there was any wrongdoing in the way they handled their cases. I would kind of honestly still be a little fucking butthurt off of that. The settlement averaged roughly $1 million for each year of imprisonment for the men. As of December 2014, the five men were pursuing an additional $52 million in damages from New York State in the New York Court of Claims before Judge Alan Marin. Speaking of the second suit against the state, Santana had this to say, When you have a person who has been exonerated of a crime, the city provides no services to transition them back into society. The only thing left is something like this, so you can receive some type of money so you can survive. Basically, he was just giving his reasoning as to why they're they're trying to go for so much money is because in what he's saying is kind of true. Even though even though he was exonerated of all of all and any wrongdoing of what happened to Melly, okay, the woman who was raped, brutally raped and suffered horrible injuries it doesn't mean that you know in a in the best other way that i could explain it even though he was not convicted and they exonerated all the he was he's not linked to any of the crimes and they said that yeah you know all your shit is expunged that doesn't mean that you know it may be in the court of law but not in the court of american society not in the eyes of people People are still probably going to think, oh, you know, he probably still did it. Just like how people think OJ did it. He probably did do it. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on the side that he did do it. But what I'm saying is that people are always still going to think that he did the crime that he was convicted of and then expunged. It doesn't matter. And that's what he's trying to say is that, you know, how am I supposed to really live in a society that just turned my back, turned its back on me? 
that's why they're trying to go for that money. So there was a documentary film made about the Central Park Five. And surprisingly enough, our president today, back in that time, um, in the 80s, had this to say about them. On May 1st, 1989, real estate magnate Donald Trump called for the return of the death penalty when he took out a full-page advertisement in all four of the city's major newspapers. Trump said he wanted the criminals of every age who ow, who were accused of beating and raping a jogger in Central Park 12 days earlier to be afraid. That's what he said in the advertisement. The advertisement, which cost an estimated $85,000, said in part, Mayor Koch has stated that hate and rancor should be removed from our hearts. I do not think so. I want to hate these muggers and murderers. They should be forced to suffer. Yes, Mayor Koch, I want to hate these murderers and I always will. How can our great society tolerate the continued brutalization of its citizens by crazed misfits? Criminals must be told that their civil liberties end when an attack on our society begins. In a 1989 interview with CNN, Trump said to Larry King, The problem with our society is the victim has absolutely no rights, and the criminal has unbelievable rights, and that maybe hate is what we need if we're going to get something done. That's what he said <laughs> back then. Um, lawyers for the five defendants said that Trump's advertisement had inflamed public opinion. You think? After Reyes confessed to the crime and said he acted alone, one of the defendant's lawyers, Michael W. Warren, said, I think Donald Trump, at the very least, owes a real apology, real apology to this community and to the young men and their families. Protests were actually held outside Trump Tower in October of 2002 when protesters chanting, Trump is a chump. Trump was unapologetic at the time, saying, I don't mind if they pick it. I like pickets. After the city announced in June of 2014 that they would settle the defendants for more than $40 million, Trump wrote an opinion article in the New York Daily News. He called the settlement a disgrace and said that the group's guilt was still likely. Settling doesn't mean innocence. Speak to the detectives on the case and try listening to the facts. These young men do not exactly have the pass of angels. <laughs> According to Yusuf Salam, Trump was the fire starter, as common citizens were being manipulated and swayed into believing that they were guilty. Salam and his family received death threats after papers ran Trump's full-page ad. Warren argued that Trump's advertisements played a role in securing conviction, saying that he poisoned the minds of many people who lived in New York City, and who rightfully had a natural affinity for the victim, and that Notwithstanding the jurors' assertions that they could be fair and impartial, some of them of their families, who naturally have influence, had been affected by the inflammatory rhetoric in the ads. Wow. In October of 2016, when Trump campaigned to be president, he declared that the Central Park Five were guilty and stated that their convictions should never have been vacated. Trump told CNN they, they admitted they were guilty. The police doing the original investigation say they were guilty. The fact that the case was settled with so much evidence against them is outrageous, and the woman, so badly injured, will never be the same. Trent's statement attracted criticism from the Central Park Five themselves, as well as others, including Republican U.S. Senator John McCain, who called Trump's responses outrageous statements about the innocent men in the Central Park Five case and cited it as one of the many causes prompting him to retract his endorsement of Trump. Salam said that he had falsely confessed out of coercion. 
So he was coerced into saying it. He believed he was just so scared that he wasn't going to have any way out of the interrogation room if he did not confess. After having been mistreated by police while in custody, deprived of food, drink, or sleep for over 24 hours. (sighs) And that's it for the case of the Central Park Five. And it sucks because we do... This isn't the first time that we've heard of people that were coerced into giving a false confession, which is why sometimes, I I mean, the thing is, we don't truly know, only they know, but I'm pretty sure that sometimes when you're just put in a situation where you're just so desperate to get out, you're going to do things, you're going to be tricked into doing something. And I've seen it before, you know, and it sucks. But that's the life we... This is why you have to be careful, people. Be careful. But then again, don't put yourself... Don't be in a situation, you know, where this shit might happen to you. So just stay safe. But let's move on to the next case. So before I get into the next case, I forgot to mention about the Central Park Five that there's an interesting new show or semi-documentary, semi-dramatic retelling of the incidents pertaining to the Central Park Five on Netflix. And the sh- it looks really good. I haven't watched it myself yet. I plan on watching it. But it looks really good. But it is indeed about the Central Park Five and what they endured. And a, a dramatization, a dramatic drama show about the incidents that involve the Central Park Five. It looks really good. And the show is called When They See Us. It looks really good. It The cinematography from the trailer alone actually was what piqued my interest. It looks really good. It looks like it's really well acted. So if you're interested into learning more about the central park five, I would recommend you check out that show. If you have Netflix called when they see us and it's all about the central park five. Having said that, let's move on to the next case, which is almost similar to that of the central park five, but it involves women. And this case is called the San Antonio four. So let us begin, shall we? In March of 1995, 20-year-old Elizabeth Ramirez and three of her friends were indicted on charges of sexually molesting Ramirez's 7-year-old and 9-year-old nieces in San Antonio, Texas. The little girls claimed that Ramirez, 21-year-old Christy Mayhew, 19-year-old, Cassandra Riviera and 19-year-old Anna Vasquez spent the week of July 24th through the 31st in 1994 in an orgy of molestation. The nieces said that the women were topless while they held them down and inserted various objects, such as tampons coated with gel, into them. They said the women threatened them with a gun and a knife. Before charges were even filed, police learned that all four women were gay and had recently came out to their families. Vasquez and Riviera were dating at the time of the allegations. So I couldn't really find a bunch of information with the trial and everything, so uh, bear with me on this. This is all of the information that I could get, which I still feel is enough, but there is some stuff that I had learned, so I will tell you once I get past the initial information that I did find. All four women cooperated with authorities and vehemently denied they molested the girls. The allegations came in the wake of more than a decade of national hysteria over claims of satanic ritual abuse of children. Dozens of men and women, many of whom worked in daycare centers, were targeted. 
Children subjected to leading and suggestive questioning by police and social workers told wild stories of being taken out on boats to watch babies pitched into the ocean to be devoured by sharks, or of babies being killed so adults could drink their blood. To be completely honest with you, I might sound really crazy, but some part of me believes that some of those children were probably telling the truth because I feel like, especially in Hollywood, <laughs> celebrities are into shit like that. And there's probably some type of weird fucking ring of like some eye, eyes wide shut shit going on, you know, behind the scenes and closed doors. <clears throat> but anyways... Mayhew, Ramirez, Vasquez, and Riviera rejected prosecution offers to plead guilty for reduced sentences and went to trial. Ramirez, who was considered the ringleader, went to trial by herself in Bexar County Criminal District Court in February of 1997. The older girl testified that the four women repeatedly molested them. The younger girl was not called to testify. Dr. Nancy Kellogg, a professor of pediatrics at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, testified that she examined, she examined the girls and saw evidence of a healed scar on the older girl's hymen. Kellogg testified this scar was physical evidence of sexual molestation. In her notes, Kellogg speculated that the acts were satanic-related. Although Kellogg admitted on cross-examination that she could not tell how old the scar was or whether it was the result of an accident, Kellogg insisted the scar indicated sexual abuse. On February 6 of 1997, the jury convicted Ramirez of aggravated assault of a child and indecency with a child. She was sentenced to 37 and a half years in prison. One year later, in February of 1998, Mayhew, Vasquez, and Riviera were tried together in Bexar County Criminal District Court. In this trial, both girls testified that they were sexually molested, and Kellogg again testified about the physical evidence of abuse. The women denied the allegations and told the jury that they spent the week doing routine, mundane things such as shopping and going to Arby's for lunch. They testified they were never all there at the same time. On February 14th of 1998, Mayhew, Vasquez, and Riviere were convicted of aggravated assault of a child and indecency with a child. Each girl was sentenced to 15 years in prison. In both trials, prosecutors won convictions by discounting the many inconsistencies in the girl's testimony and argued that the inconsistencies were outweighed by the scientific testimony of the pediatrician. That theme was repeated by the appellate court in affirming the convictions on direct appeal. In 2006, Daryl Otto, a biologist from the Yukon who was studying female sex offenders, became aware of the case of the women. He began corresponding with them and became convinced of their innocence. And in 2008, he submitted a request for assistance to the National Center for Reason and Justice, a national organization co-founded by Debbie Nathan, who wrote a book about satanic ritual abuse cases. Nathan examined the case, and in 2010, she interviewed Stephanie, the younger victim, who recounted her trial testimony. Stephanie said that she and her sister had made the false claims after being persuaded by, her, by their father, whose name was Javier Limon. Stephanie said that they were coerced by Limon, her father, who later unsuccessfully sought to take away Stephanie's children because of her recantation. After Ramirez rejected his romantic advances, I was only seven, she wrote in a letter to Ramirez, and I was scared. 
So um, her father, Stephanie's father, um, Lamon, said that, well, it, he didn't say, but he coerced his daughter into saying all those things about those women because he was actually very infatuated with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Ramirez, who's the neat, who's the aunt of Stephanie. And because Jose, is his name Jose? I just fucking said his name and I already forgot it. But anyways, uh, Lamon was um, infatuated with Elizabeth Ramirez and he was dating her sister. I forgot her name. And he would always write Elizabeth letters. He would always tell her, you know, oh, I want to be with you. I, 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 I want to be with you. Because at the time, he didn't know that she was gay. She hadn't come out yet, I believe, when he was trying to pursue her affection. Um, so she would always rebuff his affections and everything. And so it is, in, and it's their belief that this is the reason why he made them confess to being molested. But the thing that's weird about it is that even though this um, pediatrician found evidence, supposed evidence of sexual abuse, maybe the father was molesting them. And part of me believes that maybe he made them say that just so that way he could get out of the fact that he probably molested his daughters. So in the ensuing two years, the center, which helps people wrongly accused of crimes against children, raised public attention and support for the four women who became known as the San Antonio Four. Nathan and the center contacted the Innocent Project of Texas in 2010, and in 2011, the lawyers for the Innocent Project of Texas accepted the case and began a complete reinvestigation. Nathan also contacted filmmaker Debbie Esquanzi of Austin, Texas, who began filming a real-time documentary that was released in April of 2016 titled Southwest of Salem, in which Nathan said the prosecution of the four women represented the last gasp of the satanic ritual abuse panic. Um, and that documentary, I believe, is either available on Netflix or available on Hulu. But I remember seeing it on one of those streaming services providers. And it is a very good documentary. So if you want to learn about every single detail and you want to see the actual women and go into their private lives, it's almost crazy how much you get to learn about these women and meet them. But you get to see everything that goes on from the time that they were convicted, from the from the time before they were convicted, from the time about them just explaining about growing up and feeling different about them being gay. It is a very good documentary, so I suggest you, after you listen to this episode, go and check out that movie, Southwest of Salem, the story of the San Antonio Four. It's a really good documentary, and that's where I got the idea for doing this episode. Attorney Mike War, executive director of the Innocent Project of the Texas, spent two years re-investigating the case. During that time, Ware consulted with Astrid Heger, a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine and an expert in the evaluation of child abuse. Through the cooperation of the Bexar County District office, Attorney's Office, Ware obtained copies of the original photographs taken of the girls during their 1994 sexual assault examinations by Kellogg. Heger examined the photographs and concluded that there was no physical evidence of any trauma whatsoever. Confronted with Hegar's findings, Kellogg signed a sworn affidavit. Okay, she signed a paper basically saying that she fucked up, saying that had she known then what she subsequently learned about sexual abuse forensics, 
she would not have testified that the evidence showed any physical signs that the girls had indeed been molested. The development meant that Stephanie's recantation was corroborated by physical evidence. Because again, Stephanie came out and said that I lied. I made all this up. I was coerced into saying it because my father forced me to say it. Where and lawyer, and don't forget, Stephanie is Elizabeth's niece. Okay. Elizabeth is her aunt. And she said that about them. And, and they spent years in prison. Okay. And that fucking sucks, dude. Where and, and lawyer Keith Hampton filed a state law petition for a writ of hebus corpus on behalf of the four women. I know I fucked that up somehow, but it sounds kind of right to me. Citing two grounds for setting aside their convictions. They were actually innocent based on the new forensic analysis and Stephanie's recantation, and that their trial had been unfair because of Kellogg's inaccurate scientific testimony. The petition noted that Kellogg now affirms that her trial testimony was martially inaccurate, and that if she had known then what she and others in her field know today, she would not have testified that her examination revealed anything indicative of trauma or any physical evidence of sexual abuse. The petition cited a 2007 study from the American Academy of Pediatrics that concluded that torn or injured hymens do not leave scars as a matter of scientific fact. The Innocent Project of Texas had all four women take polygraph examinations and all were deemed to be truthful when they denied the allegations. They also submitted to psychological examinations that revealed that none of them possess any characteristics or traits consistent with pedophiles or sex offenders. The experts who oversaw the examinations conclude not only that the women did not commit the crime, but they would never have committed the crime. In addition, Stephanie was psychologically evaluated by Dr. Alexandria Doyle, who determined that her recantation was truthful and reliable. The Bexar County District Attorney's Office agreed to relief on the basis that inaccurate scientific testimony tainted the trial but took no position on the actual innocence claim. The women were released on bail in November of 2013. In April of 2015, the judge who proceeded over the second trial in 1998 held a two-day evidentiary hearing on the issue of actual innocence as to all four women. In February of 2016, that judge declined to recommend that the women be found actually innocent and the women appealed to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. On November 23, 2016, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals granted the writs and vacated the convictions of the four women, ruling in favor of them on their actual innocence claim and the faulty science claim. The court said that Stephanie not only established that the offenses did not occur through her credible recantation testimony, she explained in detail how her father forced her and her sisters to make the false allegations to the police in the first place. Moreover, the court said Dr. Kellogg has retracted her testimony about the physical indicators of past trauma. She now agrees with the defense that there are no definitive signs of sexual abuse, and she has acknowledged that her testimony at trial was wrong. All parties and courts, including this one, agree that all four defendants are entitled to have their convictions and sentences vacated because of the introduction of what is now known to be scientifically invalid or inaccurate evidence. The court declared that the four women were factually innocent and that they are exonerated. 
All four were awarded compensation by the state of Texas, and all four were awarded compensation by the state of Texas. May he re- Why did I feel like I read that twice? <laughs> May he received a million and seventy-three thousand dollars and a monthly annuity of five thousand one hundred. Jesus, that's a good amount of money. Ramirez received one million three hundred and forty-six thousand dollars and a monthly annuity of six thousand three hundred. Riviera Riviera received a million and eighty thousand dollars and a monthly annuity of five thousand dollars. Jeez. And Vasquez received one. What the fuck? Somebody just <laughs> released like fireworks right now. I don't know if it picked it up, but <laughs> what the fuck? I'm hoping those fireworks it might have been a fucking gun. Somebody probably died. <laughs> Looks like they're gonna be on my next episode of Strange Talk Podcast. Anyways, um, Vasquez received one million one hundred and four thousand dollars and a monthly annuity of five thousand one hundred. But one thing that they have always said, especially in the documentary, it. They may have gotten compensation. Actually, I don't think in the documentary it said anything about them um, receiving any compensation or anything. I don't think it ever goes into any into details of that. But again, there is a documentary about this case called Southwest of Salem, the um, San Antonio 4. It is a really good documentary and it was basically the basis of my idea for doing this episode. Um, I There's other cases of wrongfully accused people take case in point um the that's a, there's another documentary i believe it's on netflix too called the long shot i think it was specifically made by netflix called the long shot and it was about a man who was convicted of uh, murdering and shooting another man to death and he was going to be serving quite a bit of time but the only reason why he got off was because of the fact that they were filming an episode of curb and curb your enthusiasm and he happened in one single shot in a single frame, he happened to show up in that and was basically his alibi of like, it wasn't him. So it's, it's pretty crazy. This isn't, these aren't the only cases, but these are the cases I included because of the fact of what the people endured. And especially more to the fact of the San Antonio four, because most of their case um, in the documentary, if you watch it in the documentary, they, they basically talk about how before they were even convicted, a lot of people were already like, no, they did it only because of the fact that they were lesbians. All four of these women were lesbians and had indeed came out, come out to their families. Um, and it was believed in the documentary. They don't really touch too much on it, but a part of me, maybe it's just because I I'm in the world of true crime and my mind just goes to that immediately. Cause I mean, I don't want to misalign anybody here. I don't want to, you know, say indeed he did do it but a part of me does feel he did but the father was the one that forced the two girls um the nieces of elizabeth ramirez to say that those girls did indeed molest them and the reason for that the girls the san antonio four believe or at least elizabeth believes is because um their father jose limon was was really in love and infatuated with Elizabeth, but she was pretty young at the time too. I think she was only 16. She said, I don't really remember because I saw that uh, documentary months ago, but it's a really good documentary. So if you want to know more and, and get more personal in depth with what they endured and what they went through, um, go and check out the documentary Southwest of Salem. Uh, 
the San Antonio Four. It's a really good documentary because they even go on into um, like it shows you how long they did stay in jail. And I want to say it was like maybe a good they well they were convicted and they were found guilty. I want to say in nineteen ninety seven or nineteen ninety eight, whichever one of those years. And then it wasn't until twenty sixteen that they finally got out. Oh, no, I'm sorry, it was 2013 that they were released. But then, not only that, in 2013, some of them were released. But, not only that, they they still had a battle to go to because it took so many years. It took another three years, I think, for them to finally be exonerated of the charges. And not only that, one of them, well, I think, no, all of them had to be registered as a sex offender. So even with that still hanging over them, the, the documentary even goes into details of that. The documentary um, centers around Elizabeth Ramirez and one of the other girls. I forget her name. Um, I mean, I know their names. I just don't remember which name belongs to which person. But um, it, it goes over a lot of her because she's in the documentary a lot. It starts off with her talking and everything and you get a lot of i, I want to say it was anna vasquez that the documentary tends to follow because she's one of the first ones to get out and and she talks about her struggle of uh being out and then having to register as a sex offender she she said that even though like i know that i'm innocent and that i'm getting out and and everything and the, and the innocence project is trying to help us with our case the fact that that conviction is still hanging over me and the fact that I'm a registered sex offender is still hanging over me. When I go shopping, I get looked at because I've been in the media. Everybody kind of knows who I am. So just something so simple as going shopping is is a scary event for her. And it, and it kind of goes into that. And it's a pretty good documentary. It's a really good documentary. I can't recommend it enough. I want to say go watch southwest of salem i'm gonna keep driving that name so that way if you forget it that's your own fault you should know because i've said it so many times it's southwest of salem the san antonio four and it's a very good documentary that discusses the case that i just discussed it's a really good it's a really good documentary and i haven't seen it yet but the show going back to the central park five when they see us is about which is on netflix and it's about the case the first case that i discuss about the central park five it looks really good i haven't watched it yet it looks really good, so I'm excited to watch it. But thank you for joining me on this episode of Strange Talk Podcast. Again, thank you, because without you, the listener, Strange Talk Podcast would not be what it is today. There are many, many true crime podcasts out there and many podcasts in general out there, but you chose to listen to Strange Talk Podcast, and you chose right, so thank you. Um, so if you're not following me yet and you're new to the show, go ahead and do so and follow me at Strange Talk Podcast on Instagram so you can keep up to date of the episodes that I'm going to be working on and just overall get into the mind of your host, which is me, and just see how weird and unusual I am. Also, if you want to send me stuff via email, you can do so at strangetalkpodcast at outlook.com. Again, what's that email? It's strangetalkpodcast at outlook.com. I'll be sure to answer whatever questions you have for me. If you want to get to know me a little bit more, go ahead and just send me a DM on Instagram at strangetalkpodcast or send me an email via strangetalkpodcast at outlook.com. I'll be sure and be more than willing and happy 
to talk to you and get to know the listener. Again, um, also, I want to give a shout out to at Rocky the Collector. He recently started a podcast of his own, which I mentioned in the last episode of Hollywood Murders. Um, he's been a really cool dude that's helped me out a lot with um, finding um, news articles for when I did the segments this week in crime. Um, I'm not really doing those that much anymore because I just don't really have time to get to them. Plus do all the research for the episodes on Mondays that I usually release and then do the research for that. He's usually been the one that helped me out a lot. And I really can't thank him enough for sending me a bunch of news articles. He was just really awesome at doing that. But if you want me to keep up with this week in crime, I want you, the listener, to find me articles and send them to me and I'll be more than willing to share them with you and if you want me to give you a shout out I will do so so go ahead and send me the articles I've had a few people other people other than Rocky the Collector send me stuff I just unfortunately never got around to doing the episodes because like I said I was busy with work and stuff and raising my daughter and have trying to have a social life <laughs> but yeah uh so you know, send them to me, send them through a DM or send them to my email at strangetalkpodcast.outlook.com and I'll be sure and be more than willing to shout you out and say thank you for sending me the article. But yeah, thank you again for listening to this episode. Uh, next Monday's episode, I'm not too sure what it's going to be about, but I have something in mind. I just don't want to announce it yet, just in case I don't find enough information about it, but hopefully it's going to be one that excites you and tantalizes you true crime morbid curiosity but again thank you to at rocky the collector and his episode well his episode his podcast is called the collection which is very fitting since he's at rocky the collector so if you haven't yet go and check it out you can find it on spotify google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, and stitcher overcast any podcast platform that you enjoy listening to podcasts from so go look up at rocky the collector's podcast the collection so you can hear more tantalizing tales about true crime so as always stay strange